Amen. Please turn in your Bibles now with me to the book of 1 John. So we go from John's gospel to his first epistle. 1 John chapter 2 this morning, verses 3 through 6. Um, in my opinion, I think this might be John's spirit-inspired commentary on those verses that we just read in John chapter 15. And so we're going to look at these under the heading of knowing and loving God. First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. One thing that we continue to see as John writes this epistle to these churches of his day is just the clarity that he writes with about the Christian life. I kind of keep coming back to that because it's just so, so stark how clear and concise John is in what he's writing in this call to obedience and holy living, and the fact that, yes, you will sin, but if you do sin, when you do sin, you must confess your sins because the Lord, through Christ, is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so John writes now with that clarity about the idea of obeying and knowing and abiding in and loving the Lord. And again, it's probably, I think, his commentary uh, on those words from Jesus on the night that he was arrested and then would go to the cross the next day. Christ said that the one who abides in him will bear much fruit. And, and as saints, as the called out ones of God, we must understand that is an exhortation to us, that we must bear fruit. And John gives us this spirit-inspired instruction on what it looks like and, and what it means to know the Lord to love him and to abide in him. And the root of all this, I think, as John kind of lays out, is that we must know God. We must know the Lord. So let's look at our text. Let's read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. If you would, and if you're able, please stand with me as we read the scriptures. This is God's word. It's holy. It is inerrant. It is God breathed, it's inspired by God, transferred from the Holy Spirit to the writers and authors of Scripture. So this is God speaking to us, his people. The Lord says through John, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But... Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is the words, Lord. It is to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. So may he write it upon our hearts and use it by the Spirit to conform us according to his will. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now and we give you praise and honor and glory. You are highly exalted. The King above all kings and the Lord above all lords. Lord, there are none to whom you can be compared. You're majestic in glory. You're awesome in power. Your presence is holy, holy, holy. 
And so, Lord, on one hand, we must come before you with utmost humility. We must come before you knowing, as Isaiah cried out in your presence, Woe is me, I am undone. But Lord, at that same time, we know that your word calls us to come boldly before your throne of grace because we are those who come in the name and through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we come and we bring this singular request before you today that you would teach us through your word. Lord, we know that for you to teach us, you must exhort us, you must rebuke us, reprove us, and show us where we have sinned and where we have fallen short. So God, I pray that you would do that exact specific work. Lord, it's only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we will receive the truth and be transformed by it. Lord, if it's not for your Spirit's working in us, this exercise of which we'll partake is nothing but vanity. Lord, we must have your Spirit's help, the Spirit illuminating our minds to the truth, revealing sin in our hearts, breaking us over that sin, and granting us a God-honoring repentance. So, Lord, our prayer is that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word, great God, is true. Lord, I pray that you would also show us Christ as we consider these exhortations to obedience and to abide and to know you, Lord. May we understand that the ground of all of that is that we are alive in Christ. That Christ was the God-man. He took our sin upon his shoulders. He bore our punishment at the cross so that we could be redeemed. So that we could be brought to life. So that we could be made new and no longer be enslaved to sin, but be slaves of righteousness. So Lord, teach us to obey your word. But show us Christ. Show us Christ. Let us see his standard and his example. Let us be exhorted by our good shepherd. Let us be urged and pressed on by the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Let us see the one who lived a life of perfect righteousness. And let us strive to be like him. Lord, all that, again, can only be accomplished through your spirit. We are weak. We are frail. Lord, our minds may be running in a thousand different directions. But I pray, Lord, in this time that you would help us to focus. Help us to give our attention to your word. Help us to have humble hearts. Help us to have open eyes and ears. Lord, and help us to be eager to receive and apply the truth. Lord, help our desire to be that you are glorified in and through your people. Again, Lord, for you and you alone are worthy. 
receive blessing and honor and glory forever. And worthy, O God, is the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive the praise and the adoration and the devotion of his church. So would you accomplish that in us today? For the glory of your name, in Christ we pray, amen. So as we begin, we're kind of moving into a new section in this epistle. John has kind of written his first major and introductory session where he talked to us about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the faithfulness of Christ, our Savior. And the section we're in now runs through verse, um, verse 17, so it begins in verse 3 and goes through verse 17, and it's really this call to obedience. It's obedience in, in light of loving God and loving others and not loving the world. So it's obedience with this, with this pointer toward what we love, to what are we devoted. Uh, many pe- preachers would break down this epistle of John into a series of tests. It's kind of a, a moral test and a doctrinal test, and it's just one after another where, where John is writing so that the saints can know whether or not they are in the faith, whether or not they are truly in Christ. And, and so the test that we see here is a test of our morals, a test of the root of our moral living. If you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, you would then also claim that you want to obey Christ. And, and maybe you do, for the most part, obey his word. But what is the reason behind that obedience? Are you striving to earn favor, or are you doing it because you're devoted to the Lord, because you know Him, because you abide in Christ, and because the love of God, the love for God is being perfected in your heart? We must see whether or not we love worldly people and worldly things. And that's of great importance in our day, that this this stark difference we see between those who obey the Lord because they love Him and those who love worldly things. Worldliness is just growing and growing. It's becoming more common. There's a clearer distinction between the world and those who are in Christ. And this idea of worldliness is trying to encroach its way to to creep and to sneak its way into the church. And so we must hear the Lord's call that we must be distinct and set apart from the world. And it begins with the notion of obeying the Lord because you love Him. It's not obeying Him just because it's a set of rules and commandments that you follow. It's not that you obey a distant, far-off God. It's that you abide in Christ by the Spirit. You know God intimately and personally as He's revealed Himself in His Word. You love Him, and then, therefore, you obey. So this test in 1 John 2, 3 through 17 really drives a stake. It draws a clear line in the sand between worldliness and true Christian living. So as we come to verses 3 through 6, the, the, the consideration is our obedience. Do you obey or are you a liar? And is the truth not in you? You know, this is a clear line that's called active, devoted obedience, but many in our day still will try as best they can to blur the line simply because they don't want to obey, 
Because it's a hard truth to be told to walk in the manner that Christ walked. That is a high calling. Do you understand? It's not to try to walk as Christ walked. We are told to walk as the Savior walked in perfection, in righteousness, in heart and word and deed and emotion. All things must be as Christ was. We know we will not live up to that calling, yet it is the Lord's instruction. And so many who would call themselves saints today try to blur that line because they don't want to have to strive toward that calling. But the Lord is clear. We are called to prove that we know Him by walking in obedience. As we think about this, let me direct your mind just for a moment back to Christ. Because a lot of this is going to be what is the outworking of the work of Christ. But think about Christ before we get there. He is the standard. He is our ultimate example. He went to the cross and bore your sin in his body so that you could come to him in faith. So that you could turn from your sin and repentance and be made alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the desires of your flesh. But Christ, while you were ungodly, while you were an enemy of the cross, he bore the cross upon his shoulders. He bore your sin so that you could be freed, so that you could be made alive. And what we see in the text then is the outworking, the overflow of hearts that understand that work of the Savior. So our goal in this text, I think, is really very clear. It's the fact that we see that as those who abide in Christ, we must prove that we know God by loving Him and keeping His commandments. But if we stop there, if we end the statement at commandments, it might fall a little short. So listen to that again. As those who abide in Christ, you prove that you know Him by loving Him and keeping His commandments from the heart. You obey from the depths of your soul. So what we'll see in the text is that we know him and thus we keep his commands. We love him and thus we keep his word. We abide in him and thus we are called to walk in the manner in which Christ walked. So let's look, verses 3 and 4, at this idea of obedient knowing, obedient knowledge of God. John says, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, dear friends, this is foundational to the Christian life, knowing God. If you don't know God, you are not alive in Christ. But what does it mean to know God? How do we know that we really know him? Think about the prayer of Jesus, the night of his betrayal. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is your life as a believer. If you are in Christ, you have but one hope, you have but one future, and that is that you will worship the Lord in holy splendor because you know him. In a lot of ways, the the culmination of our Christian life 
is knowledge of God. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that is what we strive toward. That is what presses you on in difficult times. That is what presses you through temptation. It's that purity of life that comes because you know one day I will be like Christ because I'll be with him, because I'll see him. And when I see him, I will be made like him. But we still not answer the question, what does it mean to know God? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33, if you'd like to read along. Exodus 33, this is that text where you may be familiar with that Moses is speaking with the Lord, and ultimately he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. But I want to back up a few verses before that because Moses tells us what it means to know the Lord. Look at Exodus 33, beginning at verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses continues, Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you. Let me know your ways so that I may know you. So that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too, Lord, that this nation is your people. And if you were to drop down to verse 18, it says, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Friends, I don't have to connect those dots for you, I don't think. To know the Lord is to know his ways. It is to behold his glory, to know his ways. Moses says, show, let me know your ways so that I know you. And then the ultimate statement, he says, show me your glory. Let me behold who you are because glory defines the Lord and his presence. To know the Lord is to know his character and his attributes. It's to look around the world and to see his power on display, to see through the fog and the difficulty and the confusion, and to see God's sovereign power and purpose at work. So Far above just looking around the world in this generic sense, and it is a glorious sense, but it is a bit generic, we know the Lord by looking to Christ and the gospel and the cross. Hebrews says that Christ was the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If you want to know the Lord, look to Christ and the work that he accomplished. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4, Paul said, even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you want to behold the glory of God, look to the gospel. John O. Sims, I heard once upon a time, said that, that all of God's attributes are most clearly and manifestly displayed at the cross. All of God's perfections come together most clearly at the cross. His love, 
his wrath, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, and his compassion, his willingness to forgive, all of these are displayed at the cross of Christ. So, friends, to know God is to come to the gospel. But listen and understand, it's not just to recite the gospel to yourself. To know God is to come to the gospel of Christ and to see the Lord's attributes on display through the work of your salvation through the cross. See His love and His wrath jointly displayed as wrath is poured out upon the Son because of His great love for us. See His mercy on display in that He took sin off of you, for you were guilty. You were under His wrath and condemnation, but in His mercy, He removed that wrath from you, and He placed the wrath upon Christ. See His justice displayed in the cross and that He could not overlook sin, but He gave a precious infinite price, the precious blood of Christ, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be washed, so that you could be cleansed. To know God is to see His nature displayed at Calvary. John says if we, know, if we want to know that we have come to know Him, we must keep His commandments. Let's draw out an implication right there. Right consideration of the cross leads to obedience. Right knowledge of God leads to a transformed life. You have confidence that you know the Lord Jesus if you obey His commands. And again, that's a statement that if you make that plainly and bluntly, there are many today who will throw up the flag of legalism and say, you're saying you must obey to have assurance. Yes, I am, because that's what Scripture says. You have assurance because you prove that that you're in Christ by a transformed life. You know that you know the Lord if you keep His commandments. We must add a clarifying statement to keeping His commandments. To keep His commandments is not just to externally obey a set of rules. To keep the Lord's commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God has always had and will always have an inward, internal component. It's never been about external law-keeping. Galatians 3, Hebrews 11, they talk about the Old Testament saints who were saved by grace through faith, not because of their works. It's not because of external law-keeping that Abraham or Moses or David or Joshua or any of the Old Testament saints, it's not through works that they were saved. It was by faith alone. But that faith produces obedience from the heart. Dear friends, that must be what we proclaim to ourselves. And again, looking at a room full of children and parents, Parents, we must understand that that is what we must teach our children. Full obedience from the heart. Yes, you you do demand obedience. Because you want to be able to tell your child not to run out into the road for their safety. So you demand immediate obedience in, in every case. There's never a case where you don't demand immediate obedience. Dear friend, if you don't press that obedience to the heart, you're missing the point And ultimately, you're teaching your child to be a legalistic law keeper, a moralist, and not a follower 
of Christ. So press full obedience from the heart. And by the way, as you press that upon your children, press it upon yourself. Brothers and sisters, press it upon one another. That obedience that flows out of devotion to the Lord. Anything else falls short and misses the mark. So now consider with me just kind of... Zooming out just a little bit for a moment, consider 1 John 5.13. I hope this is becoming etched in your mind because this is really John's purpose statement in this epistle. 1 John 5 verse 13, John says, I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing all these things so that you may have assurance of faith. John does that through this series of moral and doctrinal tests. Your assurance comes by whether or not you pass the test. Your assurance, dear friend, comes when you know the Lord and if you keep his commandments. John is pressing full-hearted obedience for assurance of faith. For the assurance of faith. Let me tell you, friends, just to chase this trail just for a moment, that is the heart of your elders and the leaders of of the church. We press obedience so distinctly because that's where assurance in salvation is. It's not because I want you to to have a good, clean public reputation. That is great, and it honors the Lord. It it does not glorify the Lord if you're known as a drunkard or, or or a terrible sinner in the public. But your shepherds want you to obey. We press you with the Scriptures because that's where you have assurance. And that is when you have joy. There is no joy if you don't have confidence that you're in Christ. So John says this full-hearted obedience is given so, or is called for so that you have assurance of faith. MacArthur said that those who fail to obey will and should wonder if they are converted and if the Holy Spirit is truly leading them. But he continued, obedient believers can be assured that they have come to know him. If you walk in disobedience, you should wonder if you are saved. But if the course and the practice of your life is to walk in Christ and to obey his commands from the heart, you should have assurance. You know, we we live in an age where anxiety, just in general, is so prevalent. And again, that's creeping into the church and how it works out in the life of a believer often is anxiety in regarding whether or not you are in Christ. Dear friend, if you're walking in obedience, if that is the desire of your heart, have confidence, have assurance, because you know him and you know that you know him when you keep his commands. But on the flip side of that, if, if keeping his commands are a burden to you, if you would rather go off and live a debauched life of sin, you should wonder if you are saved. If the course and the practice of your life is the desire to walk in sin, you should wonder if you are deceived and if you're actually one who Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you. What is the direction and the desire of your heart knowing that that will work itself out in your practice? Do you have confidence that you are in Christ? It's not a confidence in your merit. It's a confidence in his work and the fact that he transforms all those who are his. 
John gives the flip side of this as he continues in verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John said at the end of the first chapter that if we say we've not sinned, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. So he's not talking about perfect obedience here. What he's saying is if the course of your life proves that you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. You're a hypocrite. You say one thing and you live another. You're a walking contradiction because you're saying that you are alive in Christ. But your life proves that you're actually still enslaved to sin. So the question is, do you pass this test of morality? Do you have confidence that you know the Lord because you keep his commandments? And friend, I, I would encourage you, don't be easy on yourself when you consider that question. You know, that, that's typically the response of the flesh. We, we like to kind of be our, our own biggest cheerleader, our own biggest fan, and, and cut ourselves as, as much slack as possible. Dear friend, evaluate yourself truly in light of the scripture. Do you pass this test. John continues on. We've seen obedient knowing, and then he talks about perfected loving, love that is perfected in the Lord. Verse 5, he says, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So what does he mean? You know, the, the first thing that we need to work out here is what that second phrase in him the love of God has truly been perfected what what is that love pointing to is it love for God or is it love belonging to God is it love belonging to God that he pours out to us that's kind of how the English reading sounds to me or is it our love for and toward the Lord look at uh, verse 15 of chapter 2 first John 2 verse 15, we see a similar phrasing. John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love for the Father is not in you because you love the world. It's a, it's a compare and contrast. If you love the world, you do not love the Lord. Or, or think about 1 John 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I think it's clear that this is love for God that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So back to verse 5, we could read it this way, but whoever keeps his word in him, love for God has truly been perfected. Now, now, that's an ongoing perfecting, but if you keep his word, your love for your heavenly Father has been perfected by the work of Christ and is being perfected by the ongoing work of the Spirit. And so this then becomes one of those classic comparative statements that John makes. If this, then this. If you keep the word, if you keep his commands, the love of God has been perfected in your heart. What does it mean then? We've talked about what it means to keep his commandments. What does it mean to keep his word? We're, we're, we're going to build on, on what we've seen a little bit already. Matthew Henry said to keep the word of God, the word of Christ, means to sacredly attend in all of 
the conduct and all of your motion of life to his word. It is to sacredly devote yourself to keeping all that he has commanded, to loving him with your whole heart. It's avoiding sin and actively obeying what he's told you to do. So let's apply that then to the Lord's commandments. The, the Lord's command is not simply to avoid idols, but it's to worship God for who he is and what he has done, to worship him rightly as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When's the last time you took an inventory of the priorities of your life to consider whether or not you have idols in your life? Perhaps it's a job. Perhaps it is financial security. Perhaps it's standing in the community or standing in the church or any other thing. When's the last time you evaluated your life to see if you have idols that you are placing above the Lord as far as importance and as far as that which you worship and devote yourself to? To keep God's word is also not merely to avoid taking his name in vain. It's revering the Lord. To, to keep his word is to revere the Lord to, to understand the awesomeness that is bound up in his name and his person. It is this life that reveals a joyful submission to the sovereign plan and purpose of God because you revere him, because you see him as high and lifted up. It's not just merely avoiding saying a word. It's a heart that sees God as great and glorious and worthy of submission. To keep the word of God is not only to have a day of your week set aside where you don't work and where maybe you come to church on Sunday morning and maybe even you come again on Sunday night and you say, okay, well, I've kept the Sabbath. No, that's not keeping God's word just to merely do those things. How prepared is your heart each week for the Lord's day? Do you order your week around gathering to worship and being filled up from Sunday evening to Saturday evening with the worship of which you partook all day on Sunday? Ask yourself, if you removed the worship of the church on Sunday, would your spiritual life change? If you did not come to church for a full calendar year, would you grow in your walk? Would your walk remain the same, or, or would, you, would you go backwards? If the answer is not that you would go backwards, then you're really not observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy in the right way. You're not really keeping the Lord's word from your heart. You know, your soul is fed and nourished by the Lord's common graces. One of those is the common grace of worship. The common grace of singing his praises, sitting under his word, fellowshipping with the saints. And yet, how flippantly, dear friends, how flippantly do we deal with the Lord's day? How prepared were you to hear from Almighty God when you walked in these doors? I think if we all take an honest inventory of our lives, the answer is probably that we were not prepared enough. What do you do on Saturday to prepare to worship the Lord on the Lord's day? 
What do you do in your home as you're getting ready to prepare your heart to meet with God's people to worship the thrice holy God? To keep his word is to keep his commandments from the heart. Think about the the second table of the law. To keep God's word is not merely avoiding theft and slander and adultery and covetousness and envy and murder, but it's actively considering and loving others above yourself. It's not just that you look and say, okay, the Lord says don't do A, B, C, and D, one, two, three, and four, but it's taking those and obeying those from the heart. Like Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, John says the love of God has been perfected in you. That is a perfect tense verb. It means it's a completed action with ongoing results. So that's the Lord's action in salvation. He perfects the love of God in you. Your love for him, he completes it and perfects it and gives you everything you need to work it out. But it has ongoing results. When you prove yourself a keeper of the Lord's commands, you show that your heart loves him and is devoted fully and completely to him. That is the progressive direction of your heart. And friend, you must understand that in one sense, there's nothing that you can do to make that love for the Lord increase. Okay, so there's nothing that we can do or accomplish, no rules that we can keep, no laws that we can observe that increase our love for the Lord. That is a work of God in you. That is a grace of God through the Spirit because of the work of Christ that He works in your heart and then in your life. But understand, your sin can hinder your love for the Lord. Your sin can quench the Holy Spirit. If you do not repent of your sin, if you do not progressively have more victory over sin, you will grow cold. You will not be growing in your love for the Lord if you're not growing in knowledge and love of Him. Let me say, as we're gathered corporately as the church, your individual sin, if left unchecked and not held accountable, will not only cause you to grow cold, but it causes the church body to grow cold because a little leaven leavens the whole lump so dear friend if you have active sin in your life repent turn from that sin and walk in newness of life in christ because your sin your coldness of heart doesn't only affect you it affects all those who are around you that leaven uh, of sin will leaven the entire lump of dough so individual coldness if not not pressed, if not accountable, if not repented of, leads to corporate coldness. Many churches today are cold and dead, quite frankly, because they refuse to address individual sin. The church needs to be made up of true saints who are converted, who are alive and active in their walk with Christ, and you must be killing your sin or it will be killing you, and if your sin is killing you and you don't address it, you'll bring the whole church down with yourself. Okay, so that should be weighty. That should, you should feel some weight. If you have a secret sin in your heart, 
if you have a secret sin in your life, if you go home and you're unwilling to practice the fruit of the Spirit to be loving and peaceful and patient and kind and gentle and faithful and good, you have the weight of pulling down the entire church upon you. Dear friend, walk in newness of life. Keeping his commands allows the Spirit to increase your love, your capacity to love him. You walk in obedience, the Spirit will increase your capacity to love. So it's like a self-perpetuating and self-sustaining work. Loving him increases your desire to obey, and active obedience increases your capacity to love. The love of God is perfected as you keep his word. So we've considered obedient knowledge of God, perfected love of God. And then thirdly, let's look at abiding living, abiding in Christ. The second part of verse 5 and through verse 6. John says, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So this is the perfect balance, as John does, given to the commands he's given. Because what we see is this knowledge of God and this love for God is perpetuated because you abide in Christ. You are called to know him. You are called to love him. But if you try to do those without abiding in Christ, receiving life and nutrients from him, the vine and the branches, as we read earlier, If you strive to walk in Christ without being in Him, you'll fall flat on your face. You will strive in all your strength, and you will only continue to sin. You'll sin more and more. There's a connecting line drawn here between abiding in Christ and imitating Christ. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Be in Christ is to abide in Him, to walk in the way that He walked by the power of the Spirit. 1 John 4.13 says, We know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Because His Spirit is in you, you are abiding in Him because it's His Spirit making you, causing you to abide in Him. The essence of being in Christ is walking in the Spirit. The essence of the Christian life is walking according to the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit so that you don't carry out the desires of the flesh, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5. There's this cause and effect. Abiding in Christ produces imitation of Him. Walking in the Spirit produces imitation of Christ. This is the essence of Christian living, walking by the Spirit. Dear friends, again, I'll I'll address the parents. I was reminded freshly yesterday, I think the ladies at a baby shower counted how many children we have, and it's such a great number that just kind of impressed upon me the the need to to instruct us as parents a little bit. If you understand that the, the essence of Christian living is walking in the Spirit, do you understand that the essence of Christian parenting is pressing your children to do the same? Again, it's back to what we said earlier. You're not just telling them to obey for the sake of obedience. You're teaching them to know and to walk in the truth because you're teaching them to know and to walk in the Spirit. 
Again, I, I'm all in favor, and I think Scripture even gives parents the authority to tell your children just to do things because you say them. But you can't stop there. That can't be all of your parenting. You must instruct them in the Lord. You must take them back to the gospel, to their need for Christ, to their need to be transformed, to their need to walk in the power of the Spirit so they don't carry out those desires of their flesh. Ultimately, we must understand that all of Scripture, and especially this text, is just crystal clear on what the Christian life looks like. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we come to the end of verse 6, you must follow the example of Christ. You love the Lord with your heart, and then you follow after Christ. You must also realize that you love him only because he first loved you and gave his son to die for you. You know, that, that's the root of all this. It's not that you woke up one day and realized, oh, I want to give my life to the Lord. It's that he loved you while you were still an enemy. And that Christ died to reconcile you, to bring you to himself. Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. If you love the Lord, you keep his word, and then he sends his spirit to abide in you. And that is how you abide in Christ. If you love the Lord, you'll obey him. If you love and obey him, you abide in him by his grace and through the spirit. With that then, I want to turn just a brief closing and come back to John chapter 15. You know, so, uh, I think John 15, 1 through 11 are some of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture. Verses 1 through 10, Jesus gives that discourse of the vine and the branches, of abiding and obeying, but then he comes to that ultimate conclusion in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the end of the obedient Christ-abiding life. So that the joy of Christ is in you and that joy is made full. That means that we, as those who are in Christ, don't walk around with this sullen sadness, with, with constant grumbling and bitterness and an ungrateful heart. No, the joy of Christ is in you. And that doesn't mean that life is not going to be hard, but that means that the strength of your heart is the Lord. Though your heart and your flesh may fail, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And all of that's only true when you abide in Him. Jesus said, I wrote these things so that your joy would be full. The abiding Christian is a joyful Christian. And that's what we need to go from here, understanding. Yes, there's the call to know the Lord. There's the call that out of that knowledge, we need to obey Him. There's the call to keep His Word so that His love is continuously perfected in us. But ultimately, all that works together to this call to abide in Him. To abide in Him so that you walk in the same manner as Christ walked. And when you do that, Jesus said, your joy in Him will be made full. It will be made complete. It doesn't mean that tribulation doesn't phase you. 
doesn't mean that you have this enormous strength to shoulder and carry great loads. What it means is that you rest in the assurance that Christ is your Savior. You rest and walk in that hope. So dear friend, come to the Savior. Come to Him with your heavy load. Come to Him with all your sin and, and throw it all upon His shoulders on the cross. Because He is powerful and mighty and righteous to bear the weight of that sin. Come to Him that you may find life. Find joy in abiding in Him and walking as He walked. Keep His word so that the love of God is perfected and completed in your heart. Come to Christ and, and life will not be perfect. We, we know that. But your heart can overflow with joy and with gratitude and with an unshakable, unwavering hope because by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. His love is perfected in us when we walk in His Word. And if we abide in Him, we will walk in the manner that Christ walked. And then all praise and honor and glory will be to the Lord. And that is the Christian's great desire, that the Lord would receive the glory and honor and praise that's due His name. And so we must walk by the Spirit so we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. And as we do that, we glorify the Lord, the one who gave His Son to save us, to bear the awful and terrible weight of our sin. So come to Christ. Come to Him in faith. Come to Him in repentance. And find joy in serving Him. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Lord, I pray that anything that is not clear, that Your Spirit would bring clarity, that You would... Make your word understandable to us that your spirit would illuminate and instruct our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be rebuked by your word, that we would be exhorted by your word, and I pray that we would be encouraged by it. pray that we would have a desire to walk in the same manner that Christ walked, not that we would receive merit or credit or that people would look to us as something that we are not, but so that Christ would receive glory and honor and praise through his people. Lord, I ask that by your spirit you would accomplish all that you intend. And we ask this for your praise and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.